Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none other than John Tesh. John, it's good to be back in the studio with you. It's good to be back with you, too. I don't know how you did this when you were on the road, but I was uh, I was a basket case. I just well, yeah, did. We were tired. It, yeah. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing more rewarding than going out there and playing live. Um, but it is, you know, it's funny because I think people... See, uh, you know, see us on stage at eight o'clock or seven o'clock at night for two and a half hours, and it's mm-hmm. like, wow, that looks like so much fun. And getting ready for it? Oh, it's, it's crazy! Oh my gosh! And the amount of anticipation, especially right before you go. Once the show starts, it's like football. It's like a football game. Once you have that first hit, it's fine. But the anticipation is as exhausting as the show itself. The, the hour before showtime for me is as exhausting as anything else. Well, you know, and for the years I was watching, uh, you know, other people in concert, I never thought about this, but uh, but when you're, especially if you're out there for you know for a long time you're as soon as eight o'clock hits and you go out there there's no you can't like say hang on one second i just want to do this over I, although, <laughs> yeah. although i have done that you have but but uh but i, I have to titrate my water even yes understanding that the first act is going to be you know a uh, hundred minutes long right and then you're, you're like you're, i don't want to <laughs> i don't i don't have to go well, pee I, I need a tinkle break with us although yeah. you know it's, it's your show in the middle of the show you could just be like you know what that's it for the first act. <laughs> We're but, all going to use the but, but, but it's also good to know that you're that, that Gib is there because I could say, Gib, I need five minutes, and he and he could do five minutes of comedy, and, would be, and, it, and it would be great. But it's um, there's just nothing, nothing. What a, what a great privilege it yeah. is, you know. And whenever I walk out on stage, whether the place is full or not, I'm always like, you know. These people actually made a decision to come see. They, they, they could stay home and watch Netflix all night, well, which is what I would have done. But no, it was it, the, some of the best audiences we've literally ever had were on this run, and they and they were impacted. We spent a lot of time uh, talking to them afterwards. The other thing is, we make these plans that we're going to do stuff while we're on the road. Oh gosh, I'm uh, the worst but, at that. But no, but we forget that really it's a ten hour day of just getting yeah. the show together. Yeah, it is. And then because so yeah. you, you think, oh, I don't have to be there until one o'clock, because you forget is that. You're gonna be you're gonna be there until one a.m. Mm-hmm. with with breakdown yeah, and everything yeah, like that. So you, yeah. you forget that it's actually a, that it is actually twelve hour day. Yeah, and what Gib is hint, hinting at is that you know when you uh, you always hear about sound check, right? In mm-hmm. fact, there even have been shows called you know sound check. But when you go into it, that's it, the it, most boring sitcom <clears throat> from Aaron Sorkin ever. <laughs> sound check. When you go into it, each venue is different, right? So when you're in a performing arts center or that's you know, 500 seats on one night, this happens to us all the time. The next night it's 1,500 seats, mm-hmm. and there and the, there are different reflective surfaces. So everything that you do, from your voice to the coverage on the, the to the stereo right. image to even the the piano, all pianos are different every right. single time. The mic and microphones are the same, but. It's uh, yeah, so you have to make sure you get as close to making it sound like the audience is going to want to hear it, right? And so that's what take that's where all the, those hours come from, yep. right? And then and then we do something different. We go to, into the lobby after every show, and we hang out with people and talk to them, and, and sometimes pray with them. And and it's uh, it, it's so so it's literally a five hour show. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and if you would like to come see this show, yeah. uh, you don't have to stay the whole five hours. You can go to teshmusic.com and see where we're going to be. We're going to be back out on the road again, I believe, in February is our next time out, and we're going to be on the East Coast, Southeast, and Florida and stuff. Uh, so check us out there, teshmusic.com. Link to that, uh, obviously, as always, in the show notes if you guys want to see us. We and by the way, I, I, we need to put up a graphic when we're out there. When we go on, on the Florida run in February, we need to make sure we put up the graphic for the podcast. So people know. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mention it when I'm out there, but I don't But yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in the show. It's hard yeah. to mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, our guest today is Dr. Mark Borg. He is a clinical psychologist and researcher. He's got a book called Don't Be a... 
books say don't be a jerk. He uses colorful language. Change yourself, change your, wor- change your world. Um, and really what we discuss is uh, the, the importance of personal accountability, how really the only thing that you can affect, it's very stoic. He's very stoic. I don't think he, he means to be, or maybe he does. Um, but the only thing you can affect is, is how you react to the things in your life. You cannot change the things that happen to you necessarily. You can only, you can only control your reaction to it and how you uh, plan on behaving. And so that's a big uh, topic of our conversation as well as so how to deal with things when you see red, but also how to cope with people in your life that are difficult. Uh, because we're, we're all going to have to do that at some point, and, and how we react is everything. Boy, that's, this yeah. is deep stuff, because i got to tell you, I, I grew up, because of the way I, I it's just because of the family dynamic at, at home, I grew up pretty codependent, yeah. and, uh, and, and I've been, I mean, I've read all the books, you know, mm-hmm. uh, codependent no more, all the rest of that stuff. It's hard to get on the other side of that, so it sounds great. I wonder if everybody who's ever been a fan of Star Trek, though, it gets freaked out when they just even hear his name. Yeah, you think he's going to assimilate you? The Borg. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. No, it wasn't that for you. It was just for other people. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the Borg, uh, so here, here's a quick, really quickly, a clip of him. This, I thought this was really interesting. This is him talking about how therapy is actually designed to make us more sensitive, not less. We think about therapy as giving us a, a, a shield, but what it really does, and he's going to tell you, he's going to explain it better than I can, is it really gives us the tools to understand what is actually hurting our feelings and so we can process things accurately not avoid processing it. I have people who will pretty regularly come into my office and say something like, okay, Borg, uh, you're going to have to help me raise my tolerance uh, for uh, abuse because my boss is bullying me or my uh, partner has uh, slipped into some kind of abusive behavior. And I say, look, the mind itself is built to help you tolerate other people's bad behavior or even your own. But the problem is, it only helps you tolerate in the sense of not being aware of when you're being hurt. It doesn't actually protect you from being hurt. So, the, you know, the, the, the difference between being hurt and being aware of being hurt is vast. Mm. So I actually say to people, like, look, I'm sorry I'm the wrong shriek for you because our job is to lower your tolerance and be more aware of when you're being hurt and being scared so you have a better conscious sense of when you need to leave things when they are abusive or overly painful. So it, it's funny, right? People think they come to therapy to raise their tolerance. No, you're coming to therapy to lower your tolerance so you know where you're being hurt and you know where you're being terrorized and you know where you're being scared and you're not overbuilding your psychological defense so you can go right. in and get totally beaten up and not even know it right. consciously. That's awesome. So I really look forward to it. Gibbs interview with, with Mark Borg. Uh, and before we get started, uh, are you, when do you start wrapping presents for Christmas, Kim? Um, yeah, about right. 5 a.m. on December 25th. <laughs> I'm terrible at wrapping. Uh, I, I am too. Uh, and the fact that you're terrible at wrapping is good news, by the way. If, if you're not great at wrapping presents, according to the Journal of Consumer Psychology, we found this for you. Poorly wrapped gifts end up being liked the most. Oh. So apparently people are more inclined to like what's inside a box if the present is wrapped poorly. Uh, it turns out a perfectly wrapped gift, it can raise expectations about the gift which more often than not leads to disappointment. But if your bow is crooked, the wrapping paper is ripped, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't match on the sides, people have lower expectations about the gift itself, which makes them more excited and happy when it's they discover perfect. something wonderful. It's inside, perfect. Right? Yeah, the, the, the reality is I've never wrapped a present and been like, wow, that looks great. You could put that in a Hallmark movie. I've never done that. It always looks like a toddler got a hold of things and I had to, I had to patch it up. But I'll tell you that the downside of this is the discovery that I made 
is the gift bag. You just throw a little tissue oh. paper on top of it, put stuff in the gift bag. Oh. It's the real, it's the real, uh, it's, it's not the cool way to do it, but man, does it, is it a shortcut that I've used many a time. Plus, it's sort of it's sort of uh, gift wrap neutral, right? You can't tell. It could be a diamond ring, or it could be yeah. nothing. Yeah, right? it could. Oh, yeah, it could be. It could be a, a a rare dinosaur tusk, fossilized dinosaur tusk. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to find. And, and by the way, uh, I think you may already know this, but you know your your mom uh, bought your son, your three year old, a like a, a jaguar or something. Have you heard about this? I, I've heard rumors. I am not looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Yeah, I, I I saw her uh, thumbing through the Hamaker Schlemmer <laughs> ca- catalog on an airplane. I thought, well, I may need to recharge up my, <laughs> our, our our credit cards. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's one of those things where I'm very thankful, but also like uh, it, it's her thing. She gets to have her thing with the grandkids, and that's fine. All right. Well, listen, uh, l- listen to this uh, this interview because it's it's awesome. On the other side of the interview. I want to do a quick thing about a new study that uh, that we found from the Journal of Evolutionary Biology about how women love men with beards. So set this up. Ooh. So uh, let me I, set, set up the interview. I, I, I don't know about the beards thing, but as far as Mark Borg, here's Mark Borg talking about uh, how really the only thing you can control in your life is is your reaction and, and how you behave around the people that you care about. Dr. Mark Borg. Author of the new book, Don't Be a, well, don't be a, a D, a Jerk, uh, I won't say it, Change Yourself, Change Your World. Thank you so much for being a part of our show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me on. I'm thrilled. All right. So your book, I mean, it, it has a colorful title, um, yes. which, uh, which is, is great. It's eye-catching. Is that why you did it? Is it in order to get people's attention because we, we, it just helps in this day and age? You know, it's funny. I almost have the opposite feeling. Like, it, it's... The reason why I called it "Don't be a people say Richard or jerk or beep or whatever." Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason, the real reason, is because I the incident that inspired me to write this book led to me really understanding that about myself that I could act this way, mm. and it's the word that I used, and it's the word that I still use for myself when I'm acting poorly. So right. I, I've really stuck with the word. I, I, I sometimes wish I could have come up with a different one. I wish there were some other kind of curveball I could have thrown at myself, but, uh, but that this is the word that I use when I'm acting badly. And, and I mean, I, I, it's appropriate. It's appropriate. So what uh, you say there was a single incident, though. I mean, in the book, I honestly, what I love about it so much is the is the change yourself, change your world element, which is really a focus on personal accountability in terms of how we relate to the world in this day and age. But what was the incident that, that sent you off? So I've been working with two other uh, authors, uh, Shrinks, uh, Danny Barry and Grant Brenner. We've been working... Uh, this Thanksgiving, it'll actually be nine years. We've been working on this project called Irrelationship. It's uh, it's actually a, a writing project about uh, you know, using the very way in which we relate to each other as a psychological defense against getting intimate. So it's kind of an interesting subject for three dudes to be uh, writing about and exploring, experimenting, and researching. And we were uh, at one of our weekly meetings a few years ago in the East Village, New York, and I had a, an epic meltdown. It was such a it was in public at a restaurant that we frequent, that my family frequents, that other people I know in the neighborhood frequent. And there I am, like out of control. Like I'm having this impulsive, reactive uh, behavior, blasting my colleague. And I, it was like I lifted out of my body. And I saw myself, and I, what I really saw myself doing is I saw myself justifying that behavior by thinking that the other guys were being jerks mm. and I was really, you know, putting them in their place that someone had to stand up for. And of course, what 
what it was was, you know, I was seeing through the lens of other people's bad behavior, which made me the worst one of them all. And at that moment, I, it was like hitting a bottom. And it, that this is the, the, the brilliant kind of uh, – it was like the moment in Star Wars where the guy is going, here's stay on target, you know, stay mm. on target, stay on target, and then boom. And so for me, the mantra that came to my mind right then was don't be a beep, and, I, and I've stuck with it. So you you basically you just felt like you, you had you had one of those see red moments which we've uh-huh. all had and then and yeah. and in and you sort of self evaluated and realized wait a minute I'm blaming everybody else for my see red moment but really it's my own interaction with the world that's causing this that's right in fact the lens through which I was seeing that see through moment was the lens of absolute righteousness it was right. absolutely believing that those other guys were the worst quality and the worst quality of me i mean that it was and and i wish it was a moment it it went on i mean it was like this Mm. sequence of events and i stood up at the table and i was you know really getting physical and you know of course i looked behind me and some neighbors were just a couple of tables over just seeing the neighborhood shrink you know i live in this nice community i live in peter cooper village you know Mm. it's, it's really a beautiful place and here i am just just you know, almost like intoxicated on this right. sense of righteous indignation. And uh, yeah, it was more than a moment. It was something that actually caused some real world disruption in our group that we had to figure out how to fix. And mm. I had to come to the table with a plan for really making amends to these guys. Okay, so so you just hit on something that, that I've, I've heard in other contexts before. And this idea of, of righteous indignation being one of the most powerful motivating emotions uh, going right now. And it's one of the reasons why social media algorithms feed into that so much, right? Like we see that, um, that that's, that's the thing that motivates people to have further engagement on, on platforms like Facebook is when they see articles that make them feel self-righteous. And, and this is not an indictment of the right or the left. It happens on both sides, uh, which which I, I think ultimately is unhealthy because you end up getting into an echo chamber and, and seeking out that emotion, and then you begin to really see the other side as evil, and it, it completely undermines compromise. And as we go through the holidays, obviously we're going to be seeing people that we care about with a lot of different political views. So how do we start to unpack that uh, that real hair-trigger righteous indignation moment that we all have in ourselves uh, as we as we approach people? Well, the first look, the first tool I think, and this is my favorite. I mean, this is one that I didn't use then. This is one that I really, truly believe keeps me married. If I don't have this first tool, I'm telling you, I mean, my marriage unravels. And the tool is so simple, and it's so easily overlooked. And the tool that I use and that I recommend is pause. We have to install mm. a pause button. There has to be a pause button because if we're trying to stop our own righteous indignation or our reaction to other people's righteous indignation without pausing, we're really asking the impossible of ourselves. Right. We're really asking ourselves to do something that is just beyond human human nature. I mean, one of the things that seems to drive this righteous indignation is this psychological defense mechanism called projection. Yes. Projection, right? So it's when I see what I hate in myself in you you. Right. And when I see myself in that, you know, of course, I'm using projection so that I see it in you and not me. It's not me anymore. It's in you. And so, of course, I want to attack 
that which I hate in myself even more so because if I attack it and get rid of it, maybe unconsciously I'm really getting rid of this terrible part of myself. But mm -hmm. obviously it doesn't work. It creates what you called an echo chamber, and that is exactly right. So if we don't have pause, it just starts ping-ponging, right? It just goes back and forth, and then the next thing you know, see, I, one of the formulas I think goes with this kind of behavior is there's no such thing as one. You know, there's no such thing as one D or Richard or whatever you want to call it, jerk. It, it's, an, it's an open invitation for other people to join. So if we don't have pause, we're sending that invitation, and the next thing you know, you know, we're, we're at war. And, and uh, it'd be easier said than done, though, right? Like, is it this, the old adage of pause, count to 10, and, and, try, and breathe through your anger kind of thing? Is that, is that it? No, I think it's literally pause, take a moratorium, it's step away, it's oh, using, wow. right? I mean, uh, no, pause is just the first step. I mean, pause, you know, it's kind of like uh, my wife and I have these two beautiful daughters, and they're wonderful. Uh, and we have this whole kind of system. And then a system. third daughter who's not so beautiful? No, no, no. We, a third one. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. You go. You not go. yet. Not yet. Hmm. <laughs> but I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> no, but we have these two beautiful daughters, right? And they, you know, they're one of them's a preteen right now and, and sometimes can drive us absolutely nuts. And so we have this whole system uh, developed where when one of us is flipping our lid, the other one can kind of tap in and relieve the other one right. uh, you know, of whatever's going on and, and is getting out of control. And so because we have established this prior, when the person taps in, it doesn't feel like the message is, hey, you suck as a parent. Hey, you're bombing this parent thing. Something horrible and critical. But you have to already make a commitment right. to allowing yourself to be tapped out. And that's the same way I see pause. Like pause and moratorium, they're things that I think, you're, because of what you just said, it's absolutely unnatural right. to hit pause when we're indignant. It's unnatural to hit pause when we're at war. So I really believe that we have to do some kind of practice on this. We mm -hmm. have to have some awareness of who we are. And and my book really explores a lot about who we are. And, and again, it, it's funny that I have such a harsh title because I, I'm really being immensely uh, compassionate to this person, call him a narcissist, call him a jerk, call him whatever, because it's my own odyssey. You know, I, I'm going through this myself and trying to kick, trying to recover from this kind of, um, you could call it a defense, you know, a defensive posture. Right, right. I mean, and, and uh, so, but again, easier said than done, right? Like, yep. when I feel righteously indignant, uh, I, I, am, I am so much more likely to lean in instead of lean out. And so there's a bit of self-training that I have to do in order to accomplish this of, of going, hey, I need a minute because I am getting very frustrated right now and I don't want to keep... I, I don't want to keep going down this line. You know what I mean? I think that's absolutely true. And I think that probably few people are going to pick up a book with such a harsh title if they haven't already bottomed out on this behavior. Right. You know, if they haven't already at least gotten some feedback from their world that says maybe you'd be better off if you weren't walking into every circumstance, walking out beaten up emotionally or sometimes actually. Right. So, so, you know, I'm really writing this book for people who are be, have already become honest with themselves enough to say, I'm willing to take a look at that bad behavior because I'm lonely, 
because I've pushed people away, right. because I'm hurting, because I'm angry, because I, I keep getting the same message over and over again everywhere I go. So I, I believe that the people who are willing to read this book are probably people who've hit some kind of a bottom, who've seen themselves in action enough to go, uh, maybe I want to think about quitting. Right. Right. Which, again, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard place to get to. But for the for those people who realize like here, here's the litmus test that I like so much. Um, it, it's so easy to live in that place of, like I said already, it's because it feels so good to be yeah. that righteous indignation feels really good because everybody else is mean. But you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, it's a very lonely place to exist. Yeah. And not. Yeah. And if you're looking around and seeing, seeing like, oh, my gosh, everybody in my life is a jerk to me. That's the point when you should all be looking in the mirror and going, wait a minute, maybe I, I'm the problem. And, and, and here's the other crazy thing. Like, I know people in my life, that is their comfort zone. Their comfort zone is being offended yeah. and, 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 and self-righteously offended, which is what we're, essentially what we're talking about here. And I've seen them steer conversations and situations to get to that place. And as I've worked on myself, I go, oh my gosh, I'm recognizing this behavior. I can't engage with this. You yeah, know? And, I, and, and yeah. that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt relationships in the long run. Oh, I think it absolutely does. And the part, the, the person that you're talking about when you open this, I think, is the person who there is a certain kind of uh, way that I think people can weaponize their victimhood. You know, oh, I, mean, I think no it, question. Right? No question. <laughs> oh, I mean, and again, that's the person in my job. You can you imagine I mean, a person comes into my office and it seems sometimes like their mission is to thwart me, to make sure that absolutely nothing that goes on in their own therapy or analysis can be remotely helpful to them. They mm -hmm. are so committed. And what happens is with this uh, weaponized victimhood, they actually start punishing other people with how bad they themselves feel about themselves. And yes, like you said, maybe there is at least some kind of uh, intoxication that comes from indignation right, or that right, comes from right. that depth of victimhood. But I really believe at the end of the day, what's really going on is that person is 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 sentencing themselves to solitary confinement. Right. I mean, it's, it's so yeah, they, they come into they come into therapy for you to adjudicate and for you to sit there and say, wow, you're right. You are the mm. one person for whom you know uh, cognitive therapy is just not going to work. We we cannot sit down and do this because you're right. Everybody in your life is a jerk. You are an absolute victim. <laughs> There's nothing right. I can do for you. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's interesting. And it's, it's the same kind of dynamic that goes on in couples therapy. When most people that walk into my office as a mm -hmm. couple, they're like, "Okay, I know what I'm here for. I'm here to make to 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 get somebody a professional opinion on how wrong my partner is." Yes, you know? yes. And, and of course, you know that relationships a lot of times do have somebody who who takes takes on the jerk role. And they do actually say, yeah, that's right. I am the bad one, whatever. But I think that that person is oftentimes being scapegoated for everything mm. that's wrong with the relationship. And that person actually is ripping off the other person. Like you're being ripped off if you don't know and can't find out how you're contributing what's, to what's wrong in your relationship. Mm -hmm. You're being ripped off. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen is to believe that this is all happening to you, that the world is so awful and people are so mean. It, that Because you have no power to do anything about it. And my, mm -hmm. my book is really a plea for people to do inventory and find out how they're contributing to what's wrong and, and what's right in the relationships in their right. life. Right, right, right. The, the, hard, the hard thing, though, is, okay, so let's say we pause. 
right? And let's and and I would think I see again. I see this in I see this in interpersonal relationships, and I see this in online political behavior from again both mm-hmm. sides. This is not an right. indictment of the right or the left, but I see people get this way. You take that step back. You pause for a minute. How do I start to process it? Where I don't, my own self talk doesn't double down into this world of righteous indignation because that's a problem for me. Is I will play out. Okay, I'm not engaging with this person, but I will play it out in my head uh, where I'm right over and over and over again until I reengage. That's obviously not necessarily helpful to what we're talking about here. It's not, but I think that by the time you're in that position, you have already taken the bait. Right. You might be presenting the bait. You might be the one offering it or you might be the one taking it. But as long as we're taking the bait, we're, you're right. We're jumping right in. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a whole lot that we can do, because one of the amazing things I think about this kind of you know, jerky Richard behavior um, right. is, is that, you know, there it really does work as a psychological defense against our feeling anxious and insecure. So. There is a there's actually some kind of benefit for acting out this bad behavior right. because at least in the moment it feels like we are right and it feels like it's something other than the anxiety and the insecurity that's so soft underneath and vulnerable. So we're puffing ourselves up and we're pushing other people away and at least for that moment – our bad feelings, our I should say more vulnerable feelings, our, our soft feelings have bypassed our awareness and they've made us look and feel strong. Problem is that's just relief. That's just catharsis. And in my book, I actually go to quite a great length to dispel catharsis as something oh, really? that, yeah, yeah, it makes you, because I know people, oh, it's so cathartic. But cathartic, catharsis is actually a, a equivalent of acting out our anxiety or our hurt, or our vulnerability, or our sadness. And once it goes out, if it's not actually fielded and responded to, it's really just like any other acting out behavior. Wow. It's really been debunked. I mean, there are serious scientific studies that um, a a guy named uh, Brad Bushman in, I think, 2010 did this exhaustive study of catharsis. And even the great uh, Harville Hendricks, who wrote the book uh, Getting the Love You Want, uh, he went back and revised his uh, 1997 version in 2008 and said, whoa, sorry, sorry, guys, you know, we are not we are not advocating the uh, just unbridled expression of anger. So would you say catharsis in general or just this sort of angry catharsis that you're talking about? Because like, well, okay, but I mean. That idea of change, I, I feel like, is 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 a cathartic moment. Doesn't have to come with the indignation, does it? No, no, no. And I think that what a lot of people, when when we say cathartic moment, I do think that that's more like a, a getting something out, seeing it ourselves, having it responded to, and then making use of it. That's 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 great. That's that's really how change occurs. But I think that sometimes people just think the catharsis itself, just blasting it out with nothing happening as a response or reaction to it, is where the healing occurs, and that is not where the healing occurs. The healing actually occurs more interpersonally. We're very very uh, social creatures, us human beings. In fact, the developmental psychologist uh, starting in the sort of mid-80s, uh, the guy named uh, Edward Tronic, have realized that good, healthy human re- relationships don't happen because we get along. They actually happen when we bomb out, when we have a problem, when we blow it, when we have even a conflict or a fight, and then have to work together to fix right, it. right. It's called rupture and repair, and the repair is actually the healthiest part of relationship. 
my favorite visual metaphor for that, I, I think it's a Japanese pottery method. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where when a pot when a pot breaks, they repair the seams with gold. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. Essentially, making the repaired pot or bowl more valuable than the original. Yeah. So in when you use the gold to repair, what you get is this this, this um, intricate fractured design of gold leaf going through these pots, and essentially makes it again more valuable, more beautiful than it was before. And that is such a great artistic metaphor for what you're talking about here, which is yeah. that as relationships get damaged, um, you the the build back is where is where the joy, the real beauty of the relationship comes from. That's exactly right. In fact, that's like, uh, I mean, in a kind of a crass way, that's like calisthenics for a relationship, right? I mean, that, right. and that, that's actually, if we circle back all the way to the inspiration for this book, that's what happened with me and these, with these guys and my, and my group and I, we, you know, we had this terrible meltdown and we had to really get serious about what we were as a work group. And, you know, that was three years ago. And here we are in our uh, ninth year of working together, uh, working on our proposal for our third book. So, so the, the the ruptures that we've had as a group have have brought us back together, and they've required us to really work very consciously to heal. Mm. Mm. So this is this is good from an interpersonal pr- perspective, uh, in in terms of like so what I what I'm hearing is is a good is a good litmus test for how to deal with family members, people that you already have sort of a built in uh rapport with or a built-in i need to stay with this person kind of situation like family is that um yeah this is and and you have you have a vested work interest with your with your writing group which i which i can appreciate what about people for whom you don't need to keep going with is this worth it to to go after this like i'm thinking i'm thinking of our online friends uh, online forums where people are are pushing back and forth and this righteous indignation thing is really taking hold i think in a nuclear way um how do you do do do, is it worth it to go through it not being a jerk online Uh, or should we just disengage completely well again (laughs) One of my original thoughts after the first one, the first one was don't be a beep. And mm-hmm. then I, I held on to that. And I, I, I'm telling you, I use that as a mantra mm-hmm. as I walk down the street, dodging city bikes on the sidewalk in New York. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it's uh, and especially trying to get my children out of the way. But but the second philosophy that I turned to was Satyagraha. And Satyagraha was uh, it's it it's. It literally means holding on to truth, but it's been used as a nonviolent protest by Gandhi, by Martin Luther King Jr. It's that refusal to engage with other people's, you know, self-destructive or other destructive behavior. So, yeah, you might have to kick any kind of, uh, I don't know, titillation, all of us that we get from engaging in those kind of battles. You know, we might actually have to to pull back and say there are relationships that I am I'm just not going to be able to engage in. I'm not going to be able to go forward because they're 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 they they are too strong an invitation for that very part of myself that I'm trying to uh, to come to terms with. So so you know, yeah, I mean, you can go for it, but we know it's more of the same because jerks. There's no such thing as one. They are a walking invitation for other people to join them. So, you know, part of yeah, what I'm, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, and it, it's it with that that resistance, that pushback is is what gets us into that righteous indignation 
place. That's right. It's why we post controversial things online in the hopes that somebody, oh, I wish somebody would. You know, that (laughs) that's the same feeling. It's the same notion. Oh, I wish somebody should just try it to come in my face right now. Like it's we like that feeling. That's right. That's right. I mean, there is a certain intoxication. There's a certain kind mm-hmm. of, you know, there's a certain, again, the, 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 the sort of uh, unhealthy use of catharsis that you can actually read about. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I did a kind of a broad breaststroke uh, on, the, on the research that's been done. But the, the other thing that I think is important about what you're saying is, um, for instance, I have people who will pretty regularly come into my office and say something like, okay, Borg, uh, you're going to have to help me raise my tolerance uh, for uh, abuse because my boss is bullying me or my uh, partner has uh, slipped into some kind of abusive behavior. And I say, look, the mind itself is built to help you tolerate other people's bad behavior or even your own. But the problem is it only helps you tolerate in the sense of not being aware of when you're being hurt. It doesn't actually protect you from being hurt. So the, you know, the, the, the difference between being hurt and being aware of being hurt is vast. Hmm. So I actually say to people like, look, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong shriek for you because our job is to lower your tolerance and be more aware of when you're being hurt and being scared. So you have a better conscious sense of when you need to leave things when they are abusive or overly painful. So it, it's funny, right? People think they come to therapy to raise their tolerance. No, you're coming to therapy to lower your tolerance so you know where you're being hurt and you know where you're being terrorized and you know where you're being scared and you're not overbuilding your psychological defense so you can go right. in and get totally beaten up and not even know it consciously. Right. And, but you do because when you don't know it consciously, it manifests itself in other ways. It comes Completely. out as yes. anger. It comes That's out right. as abuse towards others. That's exactly right. In fact, I'm going for it in this book on the sort of theory of acting out and how it does come from those unexpressed, unprocessed, unaware uh, kind of experiences that we're having deep down that demand expression. So the next thing you know, you're finding expression, you know, on a, you know, you're by kicking a Uber as it drives too close to you, (laughs) you know, in the crosswalk. Because you couldn't say to the person, hey, your behavior is actually really hurting me right now and I would like can we change the dynamic? Because that's, that's right. ultimately that's that's the goal, right? Is to get to a yep. place where you can turn to somebody and say, "Hey, what you've just said, I'm I'm either misinterpreting or you're saying something that's actually offending me. Can we can we figure that out?" That's right. That's right. And, and in fact, it, it, it's really interesting that you're saying that because I really believe that we cannot have that conversation with other people until we've sort of taken the. Uh, you know, the bl- stop bludgeoning ourselves. So one of the main points I keep trying to come back to, and I do, you know, ultimately really uh, harp on in the book is self-acceptance. Mm. You have to be able to accept yourself as human. You have to be able to accept your insecurities and your anxieties. And you have to, not have to, but you're challenged to see those things as gifts that when you feel safe with other people, you can actually create intimacy by sharing those things with other people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, what I'm he- basically hearing you say is when I when I when I do my pause, what I need to be thinking about is instead of here's how I would respond to what that person said, instead I need to be thinking about what is what is it that made me feel this way and how can I express that to them in a way that doesn't just up the stakes for both of us, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right because I have it's interesting you said that because after pause comes inventory and during inventory there are really only two rules. 
and I'm a little silly when I say this because rule one is focus on yourself and rule two, refer to rule one. <laughs> that's, that's how important it is. I mean, I'm telling you, I really, it, it, this whole change yourself, change your world, I've seen it. If we focus on ourselves and we are aware of what we're reacting to and we're willing to, instead of reacting, respond and seek out safe places to express ourselves and to be ourselves, mm -hmm. we are living in a different world and we are not necessarily then likely to be those people that are carrying all that angst and that indignation and just waiting to displace it onto some you know, poor person who stepped into and accepted the invitation right. to uh, uh, jerkery. <laughs> right, and what I like about this, ultimately, you know, again, what we, we keep coming back to is this idea that being a jerk, being rude to people around you, that, that this idea of righteous indignation, all it does in the long run is damage yourself. Right. Right? right. And so if we can do this thing, if we can do the pause, inventory, um, we'll get, I want to get to what the next steps are. And, and again, I, I, your time is valuable. And I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I, I really do want to get this out. So like we pause, we inventory. And and we can go back and repair that relationship. We can continue to have intimacy in the way that you're talking about instead of pushing everybody away and living in that what feels good at the time. But it's like um, it's like an opiate addiction, right? You're, you're just going you're just covering another pain and you keep feeling it uh, and you're just going to need more and more of it to get the same rush uh, over time. And all it's going to do is push all of your personal relationships away. And you're going to be avoiding intimacy at all costs in a way that ultimately makes you alone. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you'll keep walking through the world mistaking other people's counterattacks as unprovoked attacks. Right. Right. That's not what they are. I mean, other, if you're walking around as a jerk that I'm describing, because it's also sort somewhat synonymous with uh, the way we use narcissism, uh, the way we understand narcissism, uh, kind of uh, a lay understanding of it at mm -hmm. least. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a walking invitation to other people to a, to a, you think they're attacking you. They're not attacking you. They're counterattacking you. Right. Right. Well, interesting. So, so if you can, if you do that, ultimately you will change the way that the that you see the world, and ultimately, I mean, that's the subtitle of your book, right? Is change, right. change yourself, change your world. By changing your approach to this thing, will you start to see the attacks differently, and therefore your whole world will change in that way? Is that is that your point? My point really is, that first of all, that I think a lot of this behavior is because I still believe this person needs love. You know, I believe this person needs care and affection. And somehow or other, a lot of them aren't going to get it because this behavior is just so intractable. But yes, I mean, if you can hit pause, if you can do inventory, if you can t keep the focus on yourself and you can f create alliances with other people that are actually caring, then you will start to become open to other kinds of outcomes. I mean, the person who's walking around like a jerk just believes, you know, that, uh, you know, it's cause and effect. If I act like this, I get this re result. I don't see any kind of alternatives, but mm -hmm. we have to start creating alternative. Mm. You know, we have to start. And, and one of the ways I think we shore that up is by forming alliances. And I think the interesting thing about that is a lot of times the alliances that we need to form are probably are already in our lives. If they stuck around this long, right. you know, if they tolerated us at our worst, there's got to be something going on. There's got to be some willingness to work on creating something different together. 
Right. I, I, I sometimes think there are people out there who are waiting for us to return from this kind of odyssey into our own uh, self-absorption, you know, this odyssey as if like maybe being a jerk or being a narcissist is kind of like a, a journey that some people go off on, kind of protecting themselves from being overly close to other people, mm-hmm. protecting themselves from being overly invested, protecting themselves from being too intimate or vulnerable, right? You know, I mean, it's like it, it's a very effective means of kind of warding off those things about relationship that are mm-hmm. really scare, that are really frightening. Yeah, I mean, they, like like you said, because all of this is a defense mechanism, right? It's a callus that we put over our heart. Yeah, yeah, and, that's, right. And, that's right. And real intimacy means scraping that callus off and letting letting the pinpricks actually hit you. Yeah, but. Uh, your point seems to be that whether you have the callus or not, the pinpricks are hitting you. You just need to figure out, is your reaction going to be to move away from the pinprick or is it going to be to get angry and lean into the pinprick more? Uh, I mean, I'm really extending the metaphor beyond its capacity <laughs> at this point, but my, my point being like, just like this, knowing what's actually hurting you is where the real enlightenment comes from. It right? really is. Espe- yes, especially if it's become this chronic state that you've covered over with bad right, behavior right. that only reinforces the chronic state. So and we are it, so bad at that. I mean, that's oh my God. just how, every single one of us. Yeah. And, I mean, look, I was in a group, or I am in a group, thankfully. I, but at the time, I was in a group with two guys that are writing and thinking and researching intimacy of all things. Right, right, and right. And we have an epic meltdown. And then you know, so it's not to feel too bad about ourselves. I cannot tell you how many examples I've heard over the years, over the nine years we've been together, of groups, especially trios. There's something about a trio. Maybe it's that Oedipal thing, you know, the mommy, daddy, me. Uh, mm. But it's a very, very unstable group. And I, I think I trios a, fall into, uh, this is going to sound weird, but like a Freudian triple, where you have one person yeah. acts as the ego, one acts as the superego, and one acts as the id. And yeah, sometimes okay. those, sometimes those <laughs> yeah. behaviors switch, but there's always somebody who's like, I'm the best in the group. Somebody who's like, well, maybe we should reconsider all of our notions that we, and start from scratch. And somebody who's just id. It's just like, apparently there was a day when you were just the id of the group. I was id. And, you know, in, in a funny way, I think I kind of am the kind of uh, makeshift id for this group in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. because I, I, I have this kind of um, – force that I kind of throw, you know, I kind of throw myself down the street. I got to throw myself into this project. I gotta throw mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. into like, you know, throw myself onto this interview with you. You know, I like, I, I, I throw myself into that and, and one of us is very cautious and one of us is very, um, yeah, probably ego. So one of us is definitely super ego. That's the one I got so upset with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of us is kind of ego reality principle. And he kind of was Interestingly, it was the ego guy, the balanced, the reality principle guy who I believed was being attacked by the superego guy, and I, as pure id, I just, I just unleashed. You know, I was like, "That's a, I like that. That's a, that's a very good way of uh, uh, framing." You know, ne- next time I said, "Oh, how did you? Well, what inspired you to write this?" But I'll say, "Oh, well, <laughs> I was being good. an idiot." I mean, that's where that, <laughs> that's good, quite that's literally. Good. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So okay. So. Uh, I, I do want to finish the sort of the, the steps. So um, as much as I, I, we could just shoot the breeze all day, the idea of um, so we, we pause and we take inventory. What is the next thing we do in our approach to to fixing this element of ourselves? 
No, I mean, again, that now is the time once you've done the inventory and it, during the inventory, you're also, uh, you're also in moratorium. So you're not like going, you're not inventorying this at that point with other people. But if you are in intimate connected relationship, what I do is I suggest you actually take this inventory into your relationships when it's safe to do so. In fact, the other guys and I, so you come back with your inventory to the people and be like, Hey, Here's where I am wrong, and here's where yeah. I. Oh wow, that sounds yeah. Well, that because painful. that's like, I mean, that's why you know we're not talking about it. Uh, we haven't yet, but I mean, because obviously this is heavily influenced by psychoanalysis. I am a mm-hmm. psychoanalyst. I'm an interpersonal psychoanalyst uh, trained here in New York. Um, but I also was heavily in- influenced in this book by the uh, Twelve Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And they have you know an inventory, inventory step. step. Yes. Yeah. Yep, that's step four. And then they have a, another inventory step, which is step ten, where they say they continue to do personal inventory when they were wrong, promptly admitted it. So I really take that as an opportunity to then go back and start really making amends. You know, they call them right. living amends. You know, we go in back into our life as our you know our behavior. It's not even going so far as to simply say in a facile way, I'm sorry. It's more like I'm gonna I'm not gonna tell you I'm sorry. I'm gonna show you. I'm sorry, because I didn't tell you I was a jerk. I showed you. So I think in a funny way, these steps are working backward. Right. So now we get, you know, so we do inventory. We invite someone else into inventory. We make amends. And we literally at that point, after we've begun to form an alliance, you know, we can start really reframing how we see our relationship. Our relationship, we can go from this me and you kind of situation to us. Right. And, and, and that means a lot of times, I know this is really true in psychoanalysis and this is true in romance, but I think even in less, you know, uh, really deep relationships, there's still some sense of third, you know, there's still some sense of us somewhere, especially if we had a problem and fixed it. I I think there's almost nothing more intimate than having a problem with somebody and having an opportunity to make it right. And that, that really kind of takes us all the way through the, the, the formal steps. The book has exercises in every chapter that really get very, very deeply into uh, actually working on these, you know, taking real life examples mm-hmm. and trying to uh, ad- address them through the exercises in the book. And, and I mean, ultimately on the far end of this is, is a healthier approach to, to your interpersonal relationships and, and better intimacy. Like you keep saying, like this is, if you, if you feel unseen by the world, if you feel like everybody is always out to get you, uh, the solution to that is on the other side of this book, you know, where you, where you can feel seen, you can, you can experience pain in real time and not have to live with these defense, defense mechanisms. And what, one of the things that I love that you use if you, in using the 12 steps program the 12 step program is that is that as a model is that essentially addiction and alcoholism in particular but addiction in general is the exact defense mechanism that we're talking about it's just another manifestation of it so whether it's angrily commenting in online forums whether it's having outbursts in restaurants or whether it's 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 covering your pain up by by drinking and being the life of the party because because you need alcohol to do that doesn't matter. It's all the same core element, right? Exactly. That it's is the- exactly right. In fact, that that there are lots of descriptions in the uh, in the book about what acting out behavior is, and that's exactly right. Acting out behavior is exactly any behavior that allows our aware uh, our beha- our emotions to bypass awareness. Well, the book is "Don't Be a Bleep: 
Link to where to buy it in the show notes. Our guest today, Mark Borg Jr., thank you so much for being a part of the show. We really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm going to ask you two, two last questions. One is, if people want to follow up with you, aside from buying this amazing book, which I'm literally holding in my hands right now, uh, <laughs> uh, how else can people follow up with you? You know, I, I have two blogs on psychology today. One's called Irrelationship. One's called Relationship Sanity. Uh, my publisher is Central Recovery Press. But, you know, the easiest way to reach me is just type Mark B. Borg Jr. Uh, on Google, and I come up in a number of different ways. And I, I, I'm pretty reachable, actually. <laughs> I'll link to your, a link to your blogs and, uh, and to your website in the, in the show notes. Uh, one last thing I ask it to everybody. What is one thing we can all start doing today to make our lives a whole lot better? Oh, you can stop being a bee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very on brand. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a real, real pleasure. For me too. So this is absolutely therapy that uh, that I have needed for yeah, we all need for, for years. Uh, and I, I love his take on psychology too. It's a bit of a stoic wake up call, as I like to put it. I, I really enjoyed my talk with him, and um, I, I'm trying to get him to come back again and, and talk more in detail because he does it all. He's he writes the research, and he also sees patients. So you know, he's got a lot of insight. That's the other thing is is I mean, you've interviewed so many great people. There's no reason why you can't. I mean, I, Ryan Holiday's been back a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, uh, there's a couple guys that we're gonna be bringing back, uh, guys and girls that we're we'll bringing back in the new year. So I'm uh, I'm I'm actually pretty excited about that because. I've enjoyed talking to them. Uh, so before we leave you, uh, I wanted to, do, to uh, hip you to this study that I was uh, I was teasing about from the Journal of uh, Evolutionary Biology. Apparently, th- this latest study uh, published by those guys says that women really like men with beards. So yeah. researchers asked nearly 9,000 women to rate men on their attractiveness as a long-term romantic partner. So they showed them pictures of men with various stages of facial hair. Uh The majority of women in the study, and ladies, we'd love to know what you think about this on our Facebook page. The majority said that men with beards were the ones they'd choose as a life partner because the women said they perceived bearded men as more masculine, wise, sincere, generous, hardworking, pretty much all the qualities you'd want in a husband, Mm -hmm. meaning a man would be able to protect his wife and family from harm, provide them for them uh, financially. Yeah, I mean, it makes you look like a... We don't really, as human beings, we don't really have life stages the way that insects do. We don't have like pupa and larva. Well, we have. Wow. Well, here's what we have: we have prepubescent and postpubescent. Right. And there is no greater symbol of postpubescent manhood that that is, you know, obvious to people who can see you on a daily basis than than the full beard. Oh, that's it awesome. really just shows that you're. It shows that you're manly. Plus, we also associate it with all kinds of, you know, like lumberjack style qualities. Yeah, of course. No, yeah, no, yeah. Mount, mountain men don't stop to shave. They're too busy building log cabins. There that's you go. It. There you go. Well, that's it for our show today. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you like Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a lot. Also, please share it with a friend. If you share it with one friend, we get to keep doing this because that will double our listenership. So if, you, if there's somebody you think needs to hear this, please share this episode with them. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to follow up with us, facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend most of our time. We go live there, post videos, all kinds of stuff. John is also on Twitter, at John Tesh, on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. Our show today was written and produced by me, also Chrissy <laughs> Wallen, and executive produced by John Tesh, who also appears on the show and is sitting right next to me. Uh, and uh, most importantly, guys, th- th- that's it. We, we cannot do the show without you guys. So please keep listening, share with friends. Let us know what stories you want us to cover. We try to respond to every direct message, every mention about the show. Uh, We do this show for you guys because, honestly, we can't do it without you. Nice job hitting the post. You did it again. (laughs) 